Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, season two, The Directors. I'm Mario Sikora. I'm here with TJ Daw. Hello, world. All right. And we are today going to be talking about the director, David Fincher, and Enneagram Type 5. Particularly, we're going to be focused on four movies. The movie Seven from 1995, the movie Fight Club, from 1999, 2010's The Social Network, and the following years, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Fincher is a really interesting character, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him. Before we do, TJ, why don't you tell us about Enneagram Type 5? Yeah, Type 5, striving to feel detached. So fives are a number of things. Like all the other types we talked about, there's the regular version, there's the maladaptive version, and the more adaptive version. So a regular five is really mentally oriented. Fives love pursuing something that interests them, quite often something that has no practical value. That's what they like. If it's obscure, if it's little known, all the better. And they love diving deep into whatever this thing is. They like to get to the bottom of things. They like to investigate. Uh, Riso Hudson calls this type the investigator. And it's not just a matter of observing. They like to get right in there and figure out how this thing works, what makes it what it is, what happens when you take it apart, what happens when you put it back together. Fives can be really patient you know, with this kind of, with something that interests them. They will be in there for a very long time without getting distracted, without needing to eat, without needing to see the sun. Fives are usually self-educated. A lot of fives are brilliant dropouts who pursue their own interests in their own way in their own time outside of academic institutions. They're drawn to the unusual, quite often loving the obscure, the macabre, the disturbing, the grotesque. They often minimize their physical needs so they can lead minimalist lifestyles or don't pay much attention to their physical health. Quite often they're quiet, antisocial, and very fiercely guard their solitude. Disinclined to share their feelings or their life story. You can find them a lot stereotypically in sciences and in computers, but you'll find fives in all areas of life. You'll find fives who are teachers, who are in the clergy and the arts, fives who are bartenders, doctors, nurses, therapists, and law enforcement, manual labor. I know a five who discovered the Enneagram in prison, and he's now an ambassador for the Enneagram Prison Project. And he wrote an autobiography about how his life led him there and how he approached bank robbing like a five as an investigator. As fives become less healthy, the maladaptive five becomes even more solitary. They might cut off social contacts. Uh, insomnia is very common. They can be very eccentric and weird, intense, prickly, condescending if they sense somebody isn't intelligent and might enjoy bursting other people's bubbles just because they can. They can be really cynical and nihilistic, repressing their feelings or even denying that feelings even exist. There's an extreme neglect of physical needs. They might revel in downbeat locales like grungy apartments or dive bars. 
And as they go further and further down, they are prone to hallucinations, to weird perceptions, to insanity, and can have a real mad scientist vibe. When fives are doing their work, they take care of their physical needs, they get exercise, they spend time in their bodies, and this helps them think more clearly. They become connected to themselves and to others. They use their brilliance to bring about practical solutions to problems and to liberate others from illusion. They encourage others to think outside the box, and they feel electrified and illuminated by insight. They can also be really funny uh, in this kind of impish way that challenges people's expectations. They take delight in the strangeness of the world and how much there is to know and how much there is still to discover. They can be innovative, brilliant, and bring about revolutionary change that makes everyone see the world in a new way. Great. So fives are, as you said, we call them uh, striving to feel detached. And one of the fundamental things to understand about fives, and I think in particular when watching these movies with Fincher, is the relationship between points five and eight on the Enneagram. The We call point eight the neglected strategy for the five, meaning that the five kind of pushes away the strategy of striving to feel powerful, right? doesn't mean they're not powerful people. There are lots of fives. I think, for example, that Bill Gates, Warren Buffett were, are both fives. I also think Barack Obama is a type five. That's not a popular point of view, but he fits as far as I'm concerned. All powerful people. But there's this disconnection from their visceral, assertive engagement with the world that can mark the five. Okay. And this creates this distortion around that, right? And so there's often, and again, I think we see this all throughout Fincher, this sort of Nietzschean idealization of the Ubermensch, right? Kind of this living out of the fantasy of being this powerful, wrathful person, right? Who has an impact. Okay. So the more fives sort of push away, their visceral engagement with the world, the more it becomes intellectualized and the more sort of twisted up it gets, right? So this is a theme we will come back to as we talk about these movies, right? I mean, for sure. So I, I think it helps to keep that in mind. Another thing about fives is that we call the uh, the core quality of the five intuition. It's a, This point is about knowing, and it's about both inner knowing and intellectual knowing, right? So intuition is kind of an inner knowing based on experience of things. A lot of people think that intuition is just something we develop without experience. You know, we're naturally intuitive or, or something. That's immature intuition, right? But wisdom, for example, is intuition and understanding based on learning, okay? Applied learning. And this is the the path for the five is to take this desire to learn intellectually in a detached and abstract way and turn it into something that's engaged with the world rather than helps to separate them from the world. Because again, I think as we talk about these four movies, one of the big problems in all of the characters that are kind of five-ish here is their detachment and stepping away from the world. Right. So I think it's helpful to keep that in mind. I was thinking as I was watching these movies, there are a lot of things in here that we often would associate with type four. 
right? The kind of darkness and the, the, the feeling of being an outsider and being misunderstood. And I was thinking to myself, okay, so what is the difference here between the darkness of the four and the darkness of the five? And I think a part of it is, is that the four is kind of obsessed with the darkness inside themselves, whereas the five is more obsessed with the darkness out there, right? That the world is filled with darkness and I need to separate from it. Number one, so that I don't get harmed by it. But number two, so that I don't give that potential darkness inside myself room to leak out. Right, room to express itself. I don't know. Any any thoughts on that, TJ? Yeah, a couple things come up, and we're going to see this in some of the movies. Is I think fives have a real cynical view. Like the both fives and fours do experience life as outsiders. They're both very withdrawn types, and there's a I think a strong difference. Again, not universal all the time for everything and for everybody who's one of these types. But in general, I think fours interpret their outsiderness more as well, the emotional response to that is sadness. Yeah. And for fives, seething cynicism. Yeah. It's and anger. Very yeah. Often. And yeah. I think fives are much more inclined to not believe that feelings actually exist, including feelings like anger. Well, or at least feelings that incorporate vulnerability. And that everybody is kind of floating in a world of delusion. And they don't see the chaos and the madness and the ridiculousness that undergirds all of that. And yeah. sometimes fives delight in exposing that. Whereas I think fours are more likely in their less adaptive ways to see the world as full of superficiality and yeah. phoniness and disingenuousness, conformity, all of those things. So what do I do with that as a four? I create something beautiful. Whether it's the way that I dress, the way that I live, something creative that I do, the music that I listen to, any of those things. Whereas a five can almost like delight in just how awful the world is and in exposing that. And like I was saying before, bursting people's bubbles, somebody who's so naive is to think that love yes. exists, that it's not yes. just the interaction of hormones. Yes. And again, we want to be careful here that we are describing, you know, some of the darker sides of the five, some of the less healthy characteristics. And that's certainly the focus of Fincher's work rather than the adaptive or healthy version of the Enneagram type five. Not all fives are as dark and disturbed as what we're going to be talking about during this podcast. But I think even the best of fives, right, you know, the fives who are in a pretty good place can often relate to these things, right? They can see it inside themselves. So let's use this to launch into a little discussion of David Fincher. So Fincher's a fascinating guy. And one of the things we've talked about as we've gone on through these directors is how some of them are very distinct in their style, right? You look at a frame of something and you say, oh, that's Fincher, right? Or that's Wes Anderson or, you know, whereas others are not so much. Clint Eastwood is an example of that, right? You, you know, you see a short clip of something and there's nothing that sets it apart as a Clint Eastwood movie visually. Fincher, this is not the case, right? I mean, when you're watching Fincher, you know you're watching Fincher. And even though he seems to have two different modes, one is the kind of decrepit, you know, falling apart, bleak environment. And the other is the crisp, modern, 
clean, you know, Scandinavian quality, right, is, is, is what I'll say, right? You know, you think of Scandinavian design, which, you know, is featured in two movies that we're talking about, right? Fight Club features Ikea, right? One of the movies that we're going to talk about is uh, takes place in Sweden. So there is this sort of interesting dichotomy in his approach to things. Okay. So David Andrew Leo Fincher, it's quite a name, was born August 28, 1962. His films are mostly psychological thrillers and biographical dramas, and they've been nominated for 40 Academy Awards, including three for him as Best Director. Born in Denver, Colorado, he was interested in filmmaking from the time he was eight years old. His family moved to, to California and oddly enough, lived across the street from George Lucas. So when he was young, he got a job working at ILM under George Lucas, and that was his entree into the film industry. Right? Started out as a commercial director, made some really interesting and notable commercials, and then did a lot of music videos at the height of the music video boom, right? So a couple of Madonna's more famous music videos like Express Yourself and Vogue. I think Vogue was a, a David Fincher one as well. His first movie was Alien 3, which was kind of a bomb at the back's box office. Now, I'm a big fan of the Alien movies, and I've probably seen the first two, you know, I don't know how many times. I've seen the fourth quite a few times. I saw the third one once and liked it, but couldn't bring myself to watch it again since then. And this is one of the reactions I have to a lot of Fincher's movies, right? I watch it and I say, that's a great movie. I don't want to have to sit through that again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so so, uh, so it, it brings out an interesting quality. So anyway, so Fincher has made a bunch of movies. Lately, he's been doing a lot of TV stuff, right? So he has been doing the Manhunter series. Mindhunter. Uh, Mindhunter. Thank you. Mindhunter. And also he did Mank recently for Netflix, not a TV movie, but a, a Netflix movie, which is about the guy that wrote the script for Citizen Kane, Mankiewicz. Drawing a blank, I keep thinking the son. Herman. Herman, thank you. Herman Mankiewicz. So a very versatile filmmaker, uh, a very opinionated and known for being meticulous. The Rooney Mara, in one who was in the social network, had to do 99 takes of one scene. And there are, I think I saw in one of the films, Gone Girl, which we're not discussing today, but is, is an excellent movie. They averaged 50 takes per scene. And some actors just refuse to work with him and absolutely hate him. And others just love it, right? Just think, you know, it's, it's great because he knows how to get what he wants. A couple of quotes from him that I found really interesting or a couple of lines about him. Let's see, his, he's regarded as an auteur filmmaker, but he dislikes the title. His movies often involve a nonlinear narrative with a number of different storytelling techniques, such as backstories, flashbacks, foreshadowing, foreshadowing and narrators. His visual style also includes monochromatic and desaturated colors of blue, green, and yellow, meaning that he strips the color out of life. Right. And and when asked about his use of dim lighting, he said bright lights make the color of skin appear unnatural. That's the way the world looks to me. 
he said, right? Colorless and dark. Uh, first of all, he thinks that people in general are perverts, right? That everybody's kind of got this darkness to him. And he said, there was always a house in any neighborhood that I ever lived in that all the kids on the street wondered, what are those people up to? We sort of attach the sinister to the mundane in order to make things interesting. I think it's also because in order for something to be evil, it almost has to cloak itself as something else. I think people are perverts. Uh, I've maintained that. That's the foundation of my career. Okay. So <laughs> pretty private. <laughs> so we have that cynicism and darkness that you're talking about, right? Certainly on full display. What else about Fincher? A couple other five-ish things that jump out at me. One is his brilliance. You know, it's been said by a number of people who've worked with him that he could literally replace any single person on the job site, whether it's the lighting technician costumes, makeup, anything. He knows exactly what's going on anywhere. So there's another quote of his I found is, I've always been a fan of people who understand kind of everything. As a director, it always seemed to me that you wanted to know so much about everything that was going on so people couldn't bullshit you. So you could go, here's what I want to do. And there couldn't be some lazy fuck there going, you can't do that because you can't hold focus on that. I wanted to be able to go, that's not true. Give me a T56 on a 28 millimeter lens and we'll be able to hold plenty of focus. And this was put to the test, supposedly, on the set of Gone Girl. Ben Affleck, as a prank, changed the setting on one lens on one camera just to see if Fincher would notice, and he did. He was able to identify something's wrong with that camera there and went right to it and made the exact right adjustment. So there's a brilliance and kind of a desire for omniscience. That's a big five thing, is I want to know everything. I want to know everything there is to know so that nobody can fuck with me, nobody can challenge my brilliance. And this is something we'll see visually in a number of the movies too. Like in, in Fight Club, there's a number of explorations where the camera goes somewhere that nobody else could go just to let you know exactly what's going on in all these different places. A desire to disturb is something that I found researching. So another quote of his, he said, some people go to the movies to be reminded that everything's okay. I don't make those kinds of movies. That, to me, is a lie. Everything's not okay. Another quote he said was, to me, I'm always interested in movies that scar. The thing I love about Jaws is the fact that I've never gone swimming in the ocean again. <laughs> so, again, this desire to shake things up, to disturb. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. One of the the kind of hallmarks of Fincher's movies is that they don't have happy endings, right? In fact, some of the endings are really 
unhappy, unpleasant. And seven, for example, right? But he just doesn't care, right? It's almost like, I'm not here to amuse you. I'm not here to make you feel good. I am here to show you how the world is. And you better just face it, right? Which, on the one hand, you know, is not what we expect from filmmakers, right? We expect to be entertained. We expect to be uplifted by art. But there's a certain brilliance in being able to reflect the world in a harsh way that makes people stop and look at it, right? And this is the thing that struck me because as I was watching these movies, I'm thinking, you know, what makes these so powerful, so emotionally powerful, is the lack of emotion, right? This stripping away of emotion because it gets to what is ultimately most important, most real, most awful, most uplifting, whatever it is, right? It's the lack and stripping away of emotion that makes those moments of emotion even more powerful, I think. So um, I saw a lot, like you said, about being the smartest guy in the room, right? There was one producer who said, the guy's just super smart and he's smarter than everybody else. That reminded me of quotes I read about Obama, right? That Obama's big thing was he was smarter than everybody in the room and he wasn't afraid to let you know it, right? So, you know, I've seen people identify Obama as a nine, but there's just this, and I'm a fan of Obama, but his Achilles heel is his intellectual arrogance, right? This, I know more than you do, and I'm going to let you know it, okay? And this is something we see in fives when they're sort of accessing that kind of, I call it the space between the five and the eight, right? Of, mm. I'm going to rub this in your face a little bit, <laughs> you know, and you're going to know I'm rubbing it in your face, but it's not going to feel it. It's like the social network when the attorney asks Zuckerberg, do I have your attention? Right. And, and the, you know, the response to him is, you know, quite good. We'll, we'll save that for when we come back to that. Right. But uh, that, that's a great example of that sort of arrogance that is just unemotionally, you know, hammering somebody in the face. All right. So R Russ Hudson, who's a five, once described fives as an eight compacted into a skull. <laughs> I like that. I like that. All right. So um, there was one more quote here. This is the one I was looking for. I hate earnestness in performance. Usually by take 17, the earnestness is gone. And, you know, what he means by this is that, you know, earnestness is this sort of false emotionality, this attempt to seem more real than one really is. Right? And so stripping that away gets to what's really there under the surface. So interesting guy. I'm not sure I'd want to hang out with him at a party, right? You know, maybe for a bit, but after a while, you can imagine that it would be a kind of a drain to be spending too much time around David Fincher, but fascinating, talented director. I um, would want to ask him about his interest in the Enneagram. Yes, that would be curious. And I don't know if you got to see the article in the Philadelphia Inquirer from some years ago. And and I have this up on my computer, so I'll, I'll make reference to it now. Okay. So um, the uh, movie writer for the Inquirer at the time, I don't know if he's still there, a guy named Stephen Ray, it talks about how Elizabeth Salander, the, the main character in, or one of the main characters in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is played by Rooney Mara. 
And let's see if I can find a quote here. Here's another source Mara says she dove into to help her understand the complicated character she played. Books from the Enneagram Institute, a home of an elaborate system of personality profiling. And then she says, David's really, really into it. She reported on the phone recently, and he got me really into it. So I read a lot about the Enneagram. And she said, so I had him tell me what number every character was in the film. And I did a lot of reading on that. I sort of became obsessed with it. She reports that Lisbeth Salander is a five, not surprisingly dubbed The Investigator by Riso and Hudson. So finally, we have a movie that we can say definitively, this character is a five, right? I mean, you know, we always sort of qualify these with, you know, well, it kind of seemed like a five and, you know, we don't know what they were thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here we have it, right? This is, you know, this this character is a five. Designed to be a five, directed to be a five, the actors on board with them being a five. And I have no idea if Stieg Larsson, the author of the novel, knew the Enneagram, but I think Lisbeth Salander is one of the great fives of both literature and film. Yeah. So before we jump ahead to Lisbeth and all of her fiveness, why don't we start off with the movie Seven and talk about that? Tell us about the movie Seven. So yeah, Seven is a, it's a thriller, it's police procedural, and it's a horror film all in one that came out in 1995. So Morgan Freeman plays William Somerset, who's, who's a homicide detective a week from retirement in an unnamed city. When I saw the movie, I was convinced that it took place in New York. But watching it again, it's very deliberately obscured where it takes place. It is. It's filmed in L.A., but, but yeah, you don't know where it is, and they don't make reference to the city. And the final scene when they drive out into the desert wouldn't make any sense if it did take place anywhere on the East Coast. So anyway, but it's raining for most of the film, which doesn't seem very L.A., but yeah, they deliberately leave it obscure. So William Somerset's a week from retirement. He investigates a grisly murder of a morbidly obese man, and he's joined at the crime scene by Detective David Mills, played by Brad Pitt, a young Brad Pitt, who's not yet 30, I believe. His character recently moved to the city with his wife, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who was Brad Pitt's girlfriend at the time. Then a second murder takes place, a murder of a prominent criminal lawyer. And the two detectives uncover the killer's pattern, which is to kill people based on the seven deadly sins. And this movie, I believe, popularized the seven deadly sins in common consciousness. So there's more genuinely grotesque and disturbing murders that occur, each following more of the deadly sins. And the detectives trace one lead to an apartment where they discover a shadowy figure in the distance who fires a gun at them. Detective Mills pursues him through the streets, and at one point, finds himself the killer's mercy, even though he can't see his face, and the killer mysteriously spares his life. They discover another victim, and then, surprisingly enough, the killer, played by Kevin Spacey, turns himself into the police, with blood splattered all over his clothes, and he gives his name as John Doe. He agrees to give a full confession if the two detectives will drive him to a specific spot out of town, which they do, and then they're met by a courier who delivers a box, which, when opened contains the severed head of Detective David Mills's wife. And by the way, as with all of our episodes, there are spoilers in every single one of these. <laughs> You've had 26 years to watch seven. Okay, so. Yeah. So Mills, in a rage of grief, executes John Doe on the spot, fulfilling John Doe's plan with himself and Mills as the final two victims completing the seven deadly sin murders. And the final moment has Detective Somerset telling his supervisor that he'll be around, meaning he's not going to retire. So a brilliant and disturbing film, which was a huge hit. 
Yes. Uh, so it sort of redeemed uh, Fincher because after Alien 3, there was some concern about whether he had what it took to make movies, right? They were viewed as a great video director, commercial director. Seven definitely put him on the map and showed that he had the chops to make a good movie. I mean, it made, uh, let's see, it was a $33 million budget and made $327 million in the box office, which is pretty darn good, right? And so it was a big hit. Really helped to establish Brad Pitt's career as well, right? Because even though he was becoming a big star, he was not the big star yet that, you know, he certainly grew to be. A couple of interesting things, right? So again, if we think of Enneagram themes, as we know, the Enneagram is kind of based on seven deadly sins plus two. Okay. So, you know, we can kind of tie it to there. There was a lot of five stuff in this. To me, certainly the Morgan Freeman character, William Somerset was a five. Okay. A very good example. Now I think Freeman usually plays more of a nine-ish sort of character and you can almost get in some scenes a, a nine-ish sort of feel, but very much a five. I mean, he was a, he even said at one point when he's having dinner with Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt in their apartment, she asks him, why are you not married? And he said, well, when people spend you know a bit of time with me, they eventually find me disagreeable, right? Uh, which is basically saying that, you know, I live my life my way. You know, he's a very meticulous character, right? So the first time we, well, it's not so much the first time we see him. I, now I can't remember because there's this scene where he's kind of getting ready, right? You know, his apartment is very clean and neat and fastidious. And lots he's of putting books. The, this, lots of books. He's putting the switchblade in his pocket, the badge, the gun, all these sort of things. And you just know that this guy has his own little world that he's living in. And he's quite content there. Right. And he doesn't make space for people. You see this in his relationship with the Brad Pitt character. He's going to retire in a week. He really doesn't want to have to break this new guy in. He doesn't want to have to. He also doesn't want to have to deal with this murder because he immediately senses that this is just not a one and done. Right. But this is going to get ugly, as he says. Um, couple of interesting things about the names of the two detectives. William Somerset, I can't imagine, is not taken from the author William Somerset Maugham, whose book of human bondage is actually referenced in the movie. And Somerset Maugham was, uh, for me, when I was young, had a very big influence on me. And I read many of his books of human bondage. The Razor's Edge, I think, is one of the great books that any young spiritual seeker should read in life, right? In my 20s, I probably read it 10 times uh, over the years. I actually, just a quick movie uh, book sort of crossover here, The Razor's Edge was made into a movie twice, once starring Tyrone Power in the 40s, shortly after the book was published, and then once in the 80s, starring Bill Murray, of all people, in this movie about a spiritual seeker. Getting to make The Razor's Edge was his payoff for doing Ghostbusters 2, right? So he basically told the studio, if you let me make The Razor's Edge, I'll do Ghostbusters 2. I have copies of the book that tied in with both film releases. So I have a copy of The Razor's Edge with Tyrone Power on it and a copy with Bill Murray on the cover. So just to show you what a geek nerd I am, right? I have these two things. Anyway, so if you read Somerset Maugham's books, particularly his autobiographical works, A Writer's Life and The Summing Up, very much a five-ish character. Hmm. So not a surprise that he was an inspiration 
for this character. And my guess is, is that Fincher is very interested in, in Mom's work. So now the other character, David Mill, what immediately jumped to my mind was the philosopher John Stuart Mill, who was the kind of patron saint of utilitarianism, okay, meaning just get it done, maximizing, you know, the best for the greatest number, not getting fancy about things, just what is the practical thing to do here. And this was the Brad Pitt character's MO, right? He didn't want to get into having to read Chaucer and and Dante and all these things. He just, you know, let's just go out and and get this guy, you know, sort of attitude. So I found that tie in to the, the author and philosopher to be interesting. Yeah. Another thing about the character of Detective Somerset is early in the movie, they established that he's going to be retiring. And one of his coworkers says to him, we're all going to be real glad when we get rid of you with all those questions of yours. Yes. Establishing that that's his reputation on the police forces. He's that guy that's a little too smart and everybody resents him for it. And then at one point when he deciphers, and we'll get to this when we talk about the murderer himself, who's a, kind of an Uber five killer. Mm. He follows this really thin trail of clues to decipher the connection of the seven deadly sins in the first place with the first two movies. And then he goes to the library and spends all night there. And the security guards all know him. And he banters with them and he even teases them saying, all these books, a world of knowledge at your fingertips. And what do you do? Play poker all night. Mm. But he just goes throughout the stacks and brings out this huge pile of books. And he's sitting there at a table by himself at night, not one other patron there, reading all night with all the patients in the world. So very five-ish. And the fact that the security guards know him implied, this isn't the first time he's done this. This right. is how he investigates homicide. Right. And something that I read in David Simon's book where he created The Wire, but part of that was based on him shadowing the homicide detectives in Baltimore for a year, was that that is the most prestigious job on the police force. Homicide detective requires a lot of mental acuity. So it's competitive to get that job. And it's very, very difficult. You know, Not that many people last that long in it. So the fact that he seems to be a career guy working homicide and he's about to retire is another check in the box of like, okay, this guy is a big old brain. And that's what yes. he brings to the table as a cop. Yes. You know, I was thinking about, so first of all, most of these movies in some way involve solving a puzzle, right? Even Fight Club is about solving the puzzle of who is this Tyler Durden, right? You know, and certainly Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is, is a big puzzle. And and for me, because I was thinking about what is sort of the overarching five related theme to each one of these movies, and I was thinking about the seven. It's this idea that the world is a scary place with danger out there. The world is a dark place. Okay, The world is a threatening place. And I want to retreat from it, but can't necessarily. And we see this with mom at the, I'm sorry, Somerset. I'm going to confuse them now, but with Somerset at the end, he says, I'll be around. Right. So even though he's making this big thing about retiring and leaving, you know, he's not going to go anywhere. Right. So he's both there and not there at the same time, which is a quality we often see in fives, right? Fives have this ability to be there, to be engaged, and then, without leaving the sofa, disappear. Right? So there's this, I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm here, but you can't touch me, 
or reach me. So, so that was the theme. It was this, for me, this idea of, I want to get away from this, but there's nowhere to go. And that's a theme in the movie. It's just how apathetic people are in general. Yes. Sunset says at one point that in rape prevention training, women are, are told to yell fire because nobody comes when they hear the word help. And Brad Pitt's character challenges him on his you know, belief that the world is just an awful place and that's why I'm going to retire to turn my back on it. So, yeah, there's that theme of like not only is the world scary, but it's also awful and that we've all just habituated ourselves to it. We all walk around doing normal things. We go to jobs, we eat food, we have children, we raise children, we give each other Christmas presents as if everything is normal. But in fact, everything is far from normal. This normality is sitting on a very thin veneer over a giant mound of horror. And it doesn't take much to burst through that. And what are you going to do about it? Do you stay detached? Do you remove yourself from it? Do you just say, let the world burn? Or do you get in there and you do something about it? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm looking for the quote that he ends the movie with where he, there's the Hemingway quote where, and for some reason it's not in my notes here, but he says something about the world. He said, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. Yeah. I agree with yes. the second part. Yes. Yeah. So that's the quote. He has this quote that the world is a fine place and it's worth fighting for. I agree with the second part, which is saying that, you know, it's not a fine place, but it's all that we have. It's crap, but what are you going to do? Right. And this is one of the reasons why the five seeks to emotionally detach from things. Right. Because if there's that fatalistic mindset, how could you possibly go on? if you allowed your emotions, you know, to get in the way of it. It's only a couple of times when we really see any emotion from the uh, Somerset character, right? Even when he's looking at these horrible, you know, scenes, because the way that John Doe kills his victims is really pretty awful. And uh, so the only time he comes close to showing emotion is when he's talking to Gwyneth Paltrow about her being pregnant. He talks about, you know, spoiling that baby for everything you can. And then certainly at the end, I think we start to see some emotion when, you know, they realize that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head is in the box, uh, you know, unfortunately. A horrifying scene and fascinating. I don't know if you caught this, but there's that moment right before Brad Pitt shoots Kevin Spacey, where there's a one quarter of a second flash of Gwyneth Paltrow's face, right? I had to actually keep going back and replaying it to make sure that I actually saw it, right? And this is a hallmark of Fincher, this flashing in, and we see this a few times in Fight Club, right? But this flashing in of something emotional, of something loaded, that almost leaks in, right? I mean, there used to be this mythology about the subliminal advertising and how at movie theaters, you know, they would, you know, put in pictures of Coke, you know, one frame of Coke to get people to go buy it. That never really happened. And they don't need to do that because they show you the whole thing to go buy Coke and popcorn at the beginning of the movie. But so, but he uses that brilliantly, you know, of putting these things in in a way almost that you don't notice. So it's like almost saying you can't escape this. You think you can, but you can't escape this humanity that exists out there. And if you're a person of great brilliance, what are you going to do with that? 
Mm. You know, if the world is awful and full of horror, and on some level, you do have feelings that only occasionally burst through and maybe a quick flash before you can tamp them down. But yeah, what do you do with that? What do you do with the supreme gift that you have of this marvelous mm. intellect? Yeah. Interesting. So what else about seven do we need to talk about? So talk about John Doe. Yeah, John Doe, the killer. So we don't see him for a good chunk of the movie. And he leaves an incredibly obscure trail of clues. So the first victim is an obese man who's force-fed to death. And then later, the doctor who did the autopsy finds these tiny little scrapes in his stomach and gives them in an envelope to Somerset, who then goes back to the crime scene and looks around. It's not clear at all what they are. But he finds these little scrapes on the floor right next to the fridge, which makes him pull back the fridge and then see the word gluttony written on the wall in blood, which he links to the other crime scene in which the lawyer was killed. And the word greed was written quite easily to be seen on the floor with blood. And then on that crime scene, there was a picture frame of the lawyer's wife and her eyes were circled. And then that leads to the clue where they eventually interview the wife and they show her pictures of the crime scene and she identifies that an abstract painting on the wall was actually hung upside down. And that leads to them pulling off the thing off the wall, and then they fingerprint the wall, and that's why they found the words, help me, and the fingerprints are from a known criminal. It takes days to track down whose fingerprints they are, but they find it, and they think that's our killer. But then when they get to the guy's place, it's a man who's bedridden, and who is just truly one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in a movie <laughs> in any way at all. A criminal who was bound to the bed and had been there for a full year, and his arm had been severed and cauterized, and that's what was used to write the words, help me on the wall. So not only are all of these things obscure, disgusting, and horrific, but his trail of clues is so minute that it would take someone of almost equal or surpassing brilliance to follow them. And that's why we need somebody like Detective Somerset on the case, because otherwise nobody would link these murders. They just wouldn't find it. So it's like one five versus another five. And as you yes. said, you know, when he's at the crime scene, you never see him wretch. You never see him turn his face. You never see him even have a disturbed look on his face. He just takes it all in, very straight-faced, analyzing it, looking at it very clearly. And when he's explaining all this to his supervisor, played by the great R. Lee Ermey, he's describing it, again, very straight-faced. You know, he's dispassionate about it. But he's laying out his case about exactly why this is a pattern and why this is a serial killer, why this isn't just a one and done murder. Yeah. Yeah. Arlie Army, by the way, I was brought to attention by another brilliant five playing the drill sergeant in, uh, oh, shoot, the Kubrick movie. Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Thank you. Which I've seen a hundred times. A great, great breakthrough role for Arlie Army. If you have not seen Full Metal Jacket, go see it. One of the great and, movies about Vietnam. One of the great war movies ever, I think. And Lee Ermey improvised about half of his role as that drill sergeant. Yes. And originally hadn't yes. been cast. He'd just brought, been brought on as a consultant, but then was just so good at improvising as this drill sergeant character. Right. <laughs> he got the role over the guy right. who had been cast. <laughs> right. Probably an eight. And uh, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that Lee Ermey is an eight and hated working with Fincher because of the meticulousness and the need to do take after take after take. And Arlie Ermey said, Fincher wants puppets. He doesn't want actors. Um, 
Yeah, she was pretty interesting. Which, so, <laughs> we'll say about Kubrick as well. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, all right, great. So, um, yeah, the Kevin Spacey character, John Doe, we never really know what his name is. He scrapes off his fingerprints. There's no records of him. The notebooks that he keeps, right, when they get into his apartment and find all the photos and the notebooks, which are just pages after pages after pages of fine print, made me think of the Unabomber, right, for this, you know, person just writing these, you know, 33,000 another five right there's third you know hundreds of thousands of words of craziness and i think at one point one of the characters says like his brain just opened up and poured out on the page um so it disturbed and again this idea you know what was happening with this john doe character completely detached from the world no friends no family no name no job they assumed he was independently wealthy living completely a life of the mind disturbed mind though it was and you know seeing the world as a dark place and it was his job to in a sense wreak vengeance through becoming something right uh, i couldn't help but think of the michael mann movie manhunter and the character in that the tooth fairy right this character of someone becoming something again a fi- francis dollander i think was the name of that character this introvert this recluse almost who has this fantasy of becoming this thing greater than he is again this nietzschean ubermensch idea certainly something we saw in john doe his apartment altogether is very five you know when they when they find it which they do through again a very thin trail that they get to that the killer did not leave this was through mills's brilliance but there's a red door there's tools there's a neon cross there's clothes and dry-cleaning plastic covers, there's all these locks, there's a glowing screen for his film negatives, framed keepsakes of the murders, there's a dark room with hanging photographs. Photography is quite often seen as a hobby among five. And all of his notebooks, as you mentioned, tightly written. Like, there's not one bit of available space on any of these notebooks. And there's a quote that Somerset reads from one of them, which is, again, just so brilliantly low-level five. What sick, ridiculous puppets we are, and what gross little stage we dance on. What fun we have dancing and fucking. Not a care in the world, not knowing that we are nothing. We are not what was intended. So it's this deep, horrific nihilism of a really disturbed five who doesn't seem to feel any compunction about killing people in these horrific ways. He doesn't seem disturbed by having done that at all. In fact, Somerset even calls him on the fact that he seems to have enjoyed doing this. Yeah. He's got a quiet, flat affect too. You know, When he finally gives himself up and when they drive out to the desert, He's not grandstanding. He's not, you know, crazy. He's very quiet. It's almost like he's nobody at all, which fits with him being named John Doe and yes. having scraped his his fingerprints off of his fingertips. Yes. All right. So um, a dark movie, but an excellent movie. Uh, I think that uh, Seven is uh, certainly a movie worth watching if you have not seen it. Again, we apologize for the spoiler, but... Like I said, it has been 26 years, so that one's on you. And, um, you know, it's the really great standout performances from Kevin Spacey. Um, Brad Pitt, I thought Brad Pitt was excellent in this. And also Morgan Freeman, who is almost always great. Any, any, any closing thoughts on Seven before we move on? Yeah, two things. One is the closing credits. I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. They come from the bottom of this, pardon me, from the top of the screen rather than the, the bottom. Top. Yes. 
just yes. one slight detail is like, let's do something the opposite of how it's normally done that nobody has ever done before. So even the closing yes. credits are disturbing in a weird way. Yes. And yes. then another detail that came out in an interview was that the script went through multiple drafts and that David Fincher was sent the draft that ended up being made. But the studio disliked the ending so much that they made the writer come up with a new ending, which involved a chase to the end in which they were going to foil John Doe from killing the Gwyneth Paltrow character. And it was going to be a big action ending. And Fincher fought to have the head in the box ending. That just seemed far better and truer to him, which I think is just so beautifully five. It's like, let's just deny the audience that satisfaction of a happy ending. It's like, nope, the world is cold and horrific. That's how we're going to leave you. Yeah, I had read that too. And um, I think Fincher made the right choice. I can't think of a movie off the top of my head that has as a gut punch an ending as Seven does, right? I mean, I was going to say a greater impactful, but I think gut punch is, is the right term because you just, you feel yourself in Mills's position, right? What do you do in that situation? You have this person in your gun sights, you know that there are ramifications for putting a bunch of bullets in this guy. And yet, you know, he just killed your pregnant wife, right? So um, a re really, really fantastic ending to a movie. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Speaking of Brad Pitt, movie number two is Fight Club. This was, I think, his next movie. No, he made the game, I think, after it with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn, which is a movie I saw. Uh, honestly, it, you know, it was was fine. I thought I remember thinking, okay, it was it was fine. Uh, never really felt the need or the desire to go back and watch it again. I think maybe I'll give it a try. Any thoughts on uh, the game? Oh yeah, I watched it again recently. Loved it. Kind of like, we're going to get to this with Fight Club as well, but something that happens reasonably frequently in David Fincher films is there's a character or something going on which has a brilliance and organization that is simply unbelievable if you look at it with the cold light of day. Like that John Doe could do all of these things and execute this master plan so flawlessly. Or that Tyler Durden could do all of this. We're going to talk about this in the Fight Club. Or that the organization in the game could do all of these things to this guy. The premise of the game is that this kind of five-ish industrialist is gifted this experience by his younger brother, played by Sean Penn. And basically, it's a company that creates this elaborate real-world psychodrama right. that he's unaware of what's going on. But the actual practicalities of pulling that off are simply unbelievable. But I think it works beautifully as a movie. I think it's really worth rewatching. I'll have to go back and do that. 
Uh, Fight Club, honestly, um, it, so it's interesting. Before we decided to do David Fincher, for whatever reason, I, I realized I hadn't seen Fight Club in a long time and it was coming up. It's one of those movies that you always hear references to. I think it's a classic sort of cult movie because it was not well received when it came out. I think that uh, most people didn't get it at the film festival where it was debuted. Apparently, most of the people walked out. Uh, most of the audience walked out on it. And so it really got trashed by a lot of well-known critics. And then when it got released on DVD, it started to become more popular. And oddly enough, I think that it became more popular because a wider audience of people loved it, although they didn't get the message. In fact, they were taking away the opposite of what the message was, right? But then people who didn't get the point the first time got it. So so before we go on with that, let me just give a quick summary, right? So starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter, which is an interesting choice for this role. I mean, usually thought of as kind of the British actress, you know, for period films, now plays this down and dirty punk goth uh, sort of woman who spends her time at meetings for terminally ill people and addicts and all this sort of thing, right? So there is a, a very interesting casting with that character. I was reading about some of the people who were considered. Uh, the studio wanted Reese Witherspoon, which would have been, <laughs> I just, I can't picture Reese Witherspoon. Uh, another person considered was Courtney Love. I can see Courtney Love in that role for sure, yep. right? Uh, Janine Garofalo was apparently the first person offered the role, but backed out of it because she didn't think Edward Norton was up to the role. You know, strange piece of uh, insight there because uh, I thought Edward Norton was pretty good at this as he is in almost everything. So anyway, what is Fight Club about? So a young man who is not named in the movie leads a pretty humdrum life assessing car crashes to determine if his automobile company should issue recalls to fix problems. He also suffers from insomnia and takes to attending group therapy sessions for people who have survived various diseases. There he meets Marla. So first of all, the, the unnamed person is Edward Norton. There he meets Marla, Marla, the Helena Bonham Carter, who, like him, attends the sessions, though she is neither a victim nor a survivor. His life changes when he meets Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, on a flight home. Tyler seems to be everything that he is not, and together they create a men-only group for bare-knuckle fighting. It soon becomes all the rage, with fight clubs springing up across the country and the group itself becoming an anti-capitalist domestic terrorist organization. <laughs> Tyler and Marla develop a relationship leaving him often on the outside of what's going on. He soon finds that the group is out of control, and after a major self-revelation, decides there is only one way out. That self-revelation is that he is actually Tyler Durden, right? That he is having this sort of psychotic split, thinking that the Brad Pitt character is someone else, but he's not, right? Might have been kind of a like a beautiful mind, right? Uh, where the Russell Crowe character was at this sort of uh, fantasy, you know, imaginary friend throughout the movie, right? So another five character. Uh, another five character, absolutely right. And so again, we have this, um, I think, a five-ish character, although I will say that Norton doesn't play him strictly as a five, right? I think if you read 
the narrator's character on the screen is very much a five, but there's almost kind of this nine-ish sort of feel. And I think when we spoke with Tom Condon, he suggested that it was actually a nine-ish character. Whether, you know, again, not every character is clearly defined, but I think there's a whole lot of five stuff going on with this. And again, for me, what this movie captured is this discomfort with this rejection with the strategy at point eight that fives can suffer with this rejection of my own power, my own visceral engagement with the world. And what do we see the narrator doing in his spare time in the beginning of the movie, sitting at home, flipping through Ikea catalogs and ordering uh, new furniture. Again, Ikea, sparse, spare, soulless, <laughs> right? Almost clean. Right? lacking, uh, clean, you know, lacking in, you know, anima in, in a sense. But this is a character who is divorced from this fire, this animus inside of himself or anima detached from his vitality, which is the core quality that we find from a, a point eight and trying to capture it, but having to project it outside of himself in order to be able to get into contact with it in a weird way leads to a number of interesting situations, right? We start to realize that we don't see, for example, the Marla character and the Tyler character and the narrator in the same place at the same time, right? And we start to realize there's this weird disconnect, right? So at first, as we're watching the movie, we don't realize that these are both the same person, just kind of the id and the super ego, in a sense, of this one character. But, you know, there are these weird conversations that the narrator and Marla have. And you can tell that she doesn't understand what he's saying. And he doesn't understand that he just slept with her because he thinks Tyler did it, you know. So fascinating way that all these pieces sort of fit together. And as we get later in the movie, you start to see where all of a sudden now um, the narrator is on this quest to figure out just what the heck is going on to this group that has now grown into this terrorist organization, what Tyler has done kind of when the narrator is not looking and trying to put together this uh, puzzle of what is happening to me? What is happening in my world? How did it get out of control? And how do I put it all back together again? And again, the resolution of how he does this is to get rid of the Tyler Dirt character at the end is to shoot himself in the mouth. And again, a pretty gruesome <laughs> graphic resolution to a movie. But not kill himself. He shoots but not himself. Kill himself. Exactly. So, so he blasts uh, out the cheek from his body. He's got a horrible wound. When he tries to speak, his voice is ragged and full of blood, but he survives. And yes. we see the Tyler Durden character embodied by Brad Pitt have smoke come out of his mouth and just collapse. Yes, with a big hole blown out the back of his head. Yeah. Implying yes. that he's taking care of his alter ego. Yes, yes. So he has rid himself of the alter ego as the world starts to explode around him because they're in a building overlooking the city. Again, it's a nameless city. I don't think they, they name the city. They do refer to some places in Delaware. They say up in Delaware at some point, a couple of times, uh, I think refer to Wilmington and something else. But uh, where they were was nowhere south of Delaware that I'm aware of. It was a pretty bleak sort of Detroit sort of place, right? But anyway, so they're kind of blowing, you know, the city up as the movie is ending. A couple of things. So again, the movie was misunderstood. 
because what Fincher seemed to be trying to do was make a statement on what is now called toxic masculinity, right? This need to express oneself through violence and materialism. And the movie is actually an anti-violence, anti-materialism movie. But as so often happens, people don't get it. So the initial reaction was people not getting that this was anti-violence and thinking that it was promoting violence. So they hated it. And then you got a bunch of people who loved it because they thought it was glorifying fight clubs. Kind of like how many guys have posters of Al Pacino with Scarface. Scarface, absolutely. Or or any gangster characters as if they'd somehow missed the final 30 minutes of Goodfellas or the final half (laughs) of Goodfellas and only got the part where it's like being a gangster is awesome. Those guys are so badass. Nobody messes with them. They can do anything they want. It's like, yeah, but you missed the part where they all die and betray each other. Yes. Same thing with Scarface, right? You clearly missed the ending of Scarface if you want to glorify the life of Tony Montana, right? Because it does not end well for him. I'd say hello to my little friend. You know? That's his last stand. That's, yeah, right before he died. So it's, yes. yeah, I guess never underestimate the ability of some people to uh, take the wrong message from the film. Yes. So a uh, couple of other things. Let's see. So again, you know, whether or not the narrator character is a clean sort of five portrayal, definitely five-ish themes throughout this movie. Again, there's this detachment right? There's this sort of schizoid break that we see, you know, sometimes happens to really unhealthy fives. There is this rejection of the visceral elements of life, right? Of the, you know, embrace of life. And in fact, this is one of the things that Tyler Durden is trying to get the narrator to do is to feel a life. And at the end, when they have that car crash and they're crawling out, you know, they're all banged up and they're crawling out of the car and Tyler Durden starts laughing. And he said, we just had a near life experience. So it's this attempt to feel something, even if what we're trying to feel is pain, which made me think of the, um, the Trent Reznor song, Trent Reznor, who did the music for many of these movies, but the, the song hurt which uh, Johnny Cash does a great, great cover of. Uh, Listener, if you're uh, not familiar with that song, Google Johnny Cash and Hurt. And there's a line in there where he says, I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. And so I think this is the theme, uh, one of the themes of Fight Club. What else about Fight Club? Well, that narrator character, stereotypically for a five, or his fiveishness, he's a chronic insomniac. And that's based on the author of the novel, Chuck Palahniuk, who himself, you know, I've read a lot of his books. This movie hit me between the eyes when I saw it. And I went on to read, you know, all of Chuck Palahniuk's novels for the next 10 years. He was just cranking them out. He's very much a five and he's written about the movie and about the novel and said that insomnia is based on himself. And there's some great lines describing and he says, everything's far away. Everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. And you're, when you can't sleep, you're never, when you're an insomniac, you never, you're never really asleep and you're never really awake. There's the fact that his job is, on the one hand, sitting in a soulless office, on the other hand, doing endless travel to car crash sites and having that cold analytical ability to calculate, is it worth doing a recall? You know, to not consider the human factor at all, to consider if we don't do a recall, if we just pay out people who sue us that's still going to result in mayhem and death and injury for many, many people. But just to have that detached relationship with that, 
And then the catalog shot, you know, there's, there's a scene early, which is quite brilliant, where we're establishing the narrator's life, and he's just describing how empty his life is. And there's a panning shot of his apartment, which has the camera pans, is populated with the furniture that he's bought and the catalog descriptions of it. And this kind of peppy bossa nova music is playing over top. And the narrator just walks through it. He walks through the frame like, like this is all normal. So I, I thought this is a really nice combination of five things. you got the director's brilliance and these multiple layers happening on camera seamlessly. And then you've got this peppy music that says, look at how fun this is when it's really not. This guy's living a horrible life, just showing how strange life is. We've a customers ourselves too. And we haven't talked about the instinctual biases with David Fincher. My takeaway from researching them and from watching these movies, preserving. Yeah. One of the things that he said that he really liked about this movie was that scene when he's obsessing about his apartment, he related to that. That was his life. And that specific layout of that apartment was based on an apartment that he had. And then when he moves out of that place, well, it explodes. We find out later that it was Tyler Durden, a.k.a. the narrator himself, who exploded it. But he goes to Tyler Durden's house, which is the house on Paper Street, which is this Victorian mansion that's <laughs> so incredibly decrepit that it's beautiful in its own way. So most of the windows are boarded up. There's no lock on the door. The stairs are ready to collapse. Uh, there's brown water. There's groaning pipes. There's paint peeling from every wall. He sleeps on a grimy brown mattress with no pillow and no blankets. Every time it rains, it leaks all over the place, and they have to kill the power, and it shows them in the basement. There's you know a few inches of water flooding it. Uh, there's rusty nails to snag things on. There's giant piles of magazines and papers. There's mold on the tiles. I read in, the, in an interview, they had to build this house. You know, They filmed the movie in L.A. There aren't any Victorian houses in L.A. So they had to build this thing, which, again, probably a five's preference is good. I get to control every single element of this. I don't just set decorate a house that's there. We construct this from the ground up. And I can make it exactly as disgusting and awful and low down as I want it to be. And then watching this, and this happens in a lot of his movies, you feel that place. You spend a lot of time in these environments. You really get the sense that these are lived in, even though it's a set. It's a constructed yeah. set. The interior is probably a soundstage. But the, yeah. the, the living space is so vivid. It comes up a lot in this. So it's interesting that you bring up the instinctual bias because I agree he, there is a theme of preserving five that we see in uh, some of these movies. And that was my sense of Fincher as well, watching him. And what I have seen in the preserving fives I know is they're either hoarders who, you know, live in these kind of decrepit sort of places. Well, let me be careful about this, right? I see two extremes, either being hoarders or being minimalists. And uh, for example, my brother is a preserving five and he has only what he absolutely needs. But everything's in its place. Everything is as it should be. Everything is exactly what he wants. But he does not have an extra of anything because I don't need it, right? It's that uh, stinginess of the five. Or it's this inability to let go, right? And these are the kind of versions of the five we find buried under newspapers from the 1960s. And so we see both sides of this, both of these extremes in uh, Fincher and in his work, this sparseness and this decrepit lushness <laughs> in a way, right? Um, yeah, in, in interesting observation. What else about Fight Club? 
Mar Marla Singer, as you mentioned before, dresses like a goth, but she strikes me as more of a five than a four. Goths are stereotypically fours, but she's got this real caustic nature to her personality. She goes, you know, as you mentioned, we meet her when she's going to all these support meetings for different people who have chronic illnesses, and she doesn't have any chronic illness herself. She's feeding on people's memories or misery like a vampire. She's also smoking at these things, including you know, people who have tuberculosis. <laughs> yeah, people have lung cancer. And she's yeah. smoking. My, my smoking didn't go over it while at the tuberculosis <laughs> group, she says. Yeah. At one point, the narrator comes over to tell her off for being a fake, even though he's a fake himself. And then yeah. she cuts him off by saying, I saw you practicing this, telling me off. Is it going as well as you'd hoped? Yeah. You know, so she's, again, very flat, very smart cutting through all the bullshit yes. she she calls up the narrator at one point to tell him that she's taken an overdose of xanax and saying you know you know how some suicides are real and some are cries for help this is probably one of those cries for help she's saying this very dispassionately <laughs> and then just invites him to just remain on the phone and listen to her die saying have you ever heard a death rattle before and then later, when she gets together with Tyler, Tyler's describing some of the things she said. And there's this one line that she says right after sex, which is, my God, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. And as <laughs> horrifying and caustic as that line is, that was actually a substitute for the line that was really in the script, which was also in the novel, which the studio would not allow, which is, I want to have your abortion. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so just <laughs> seething darkness coming out of her. But it's not a emotional darkness, right? It's not a dramatic darkness like we might expect to see in a four, right? I mean, if that yeah. character was a four, there would be this emotionality to it, which is completely stripped away in the Marla yeah. character, I think. You see no feelings from her at all, other than outrage when, you know, the, the Tyler Durden's minions are, are carrying her somewhere she doesn't want to go. So there's confusion, right. there's anger, but there's never sadness. Another thing about the movie, there's just this great scene. What Tyler Durden does for a living is he makes high-end soap and he sells this to boutiques. <laughs> and it turns out the soap is made out of the fat from liposuction clinics. So the narrator says it was beautiful. We were selling rich women's fat asses back to them. Again, just this horrible humor to him. This really dark, yes. kind of caustic nature to him. And then the scene when they're stealing the fat, they have to climb a fence which has a barbed wire top. And they're hauling these bags out and throwing them over. And one of them snags on the barbed wire and splits open and the fat just bloops all over the ground and all over the two actors, which is just beautifully grotesque and disgusting and hilarious in such a five way. And then one more thing to mention, you know, you talked about the puzzle solving element that's in a lot of Fincher's movies and a lot of fives love solving really difficult puzzles. This movie does reward repeat viewings in that once you know the big reveal, you can see it in almost every scene. There's clues yes. again and again and again. And you can watch it and see how this moment, this line of dialogue, this hint works both ways. You can see that it means what it means, but it also means the opposite. And you feel really smart for picking up on that. I, I saw a quote about Fincher's work where somebody described his movies as, as precise as a Swiss watch. And they really are constructed that way. And what you're speaking to there is a good example of that, right? Because it's one of those things when the reveal happens, you're surprised, but you also realize, how could I have not have seen this the whole time? And, and, and I agree that the repeated watchings uh, satisfy that. And in fact, it made me think of, again, there's another part like the Gwyneth Paltrow insert they actually talk about inserting these because one of the jobs that Tyler Durden 
had was working as the projectionist at a movie theater. And he liked to insert subliminal clips of penises into the family movies. So there'd be a family watching a movie and it'd say people wouldn't know what they were seeing, but they could feel it. And they cut to this family sitting there and the mother and father are horrified and the little girl's crying and they, they don't really know why, right? Because you know, there was the insertion of this. And there's the scene when, uh, in the beginning, when the narrator goes to the, to the doctor asking for sleeping pills to help him sleep. And the doctor says, no, you don't need them. You just need to get a good night rest, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he starts talking about what his pain and suffering is. And the doctor says, you're, you're not suffering. And he points to some sick children or something. I can't quite remember at this point and says, that's pain. And as he does that, there's this flash image of Tyler Durden, right? That's just real quick, you know? And again, I didn't even notice it until I said, wait a minute, something just happened there. And I had to go rewind it. And sure enough, it's Brad Pitt standing there. So there's a few subliminal things. And then a friend of mine pointed out, there's a scene in the montage when the narrator character is describing his life traveling. And he's describing all the airports. There's a lot of shots of him in planes or at airports or in hotels. And on one TV screen in a hotel room, you turn it on and there's the staff of the hotel. And they all say in unison, welcome in their uniforms. If you look closely, one of those staff members is Brad Pitt. Oh, really? Easy to miss. It's on the far right side of the screen. So your eye automatically goes to the left side because that's where words start if you're right. an English reader. Right. Uh, right. So it's not where you're looking first. But I had to pause it to see it. It's like, yep, there he is, plain as day, in the front row on the far right. So yeah, Easter eggs abound in the movie. Yeah. And, and you just know that as Fincher is making these movies... He's just enjoying himself to no end. And part of him is thinking, these morons won't catch this, right? <laughs> you know, these idiots aren't going to see Brad Pitt on the TV. And I can just get this feeling that it gives him even more joy that 90% of the audience will miss these little things that he's putting in there. So that's that's me just making assumptions. So um, Fight Club, again, not a big hit. Uh, it cost $63 million to make. It made $100 million at the box office. Generally, a movie has to make twice its budget in order to be profitable. So again, um, it didn't serve his reputation that well until it came out on DVD and became a big hit. Uh, when it got its second life and since then has been again considered a cult classic i'm sure everyone listening has heard the line the first rule of fight club is that you don't talk about fight club right the second rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club etc so uh, certainly some lines in there that have become memes uh, in society you've been listening to the enneagram in a movie podcast which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action Podcast Network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.